death cafes and authentic assurance about our mortality. Let's till that soil. Here's your almanac for tilling the cultural soil with the conversations we plan with humor, faith, and wisdom. Here's your hosts, Dr. Peter Kapsner, Carmen LeBurge, and I'm Nat. Welcome to The Till. Hey, welcome to this episode of The Till. I'm Carmen LeBurge. I am here with Peter Kapsner and Nat Becker. Hello, gentlemen. Hey, hey Carmen. So I thought that today maybe we would talk about death. Because that seems like a good topic of conversation. Yeah, gee, that casual. Yeah, that brings everything to a screeching halt right there. Uh, <laughs> in, terms, in terms of interest in the topic, what what are we talking about? You're talking about death. So, um, it's a subject that you know at some point everybody thinks about and people deal with in different ways. And so, I've been reading a lot of um, just evidence lately that people who have no system of belief, no system of faith, you know, right, as they approach death, they come up with all kinds of ways to deal with it. And so sort of how how humanists, how people who do not believe in God, um, how do humanists face death without God? So I thought that might be an interesting um, topic to delve around in. And I've read uh, some recent articles that I thought I would bring into the conversation, but I also sent Nat out on a little um, finder's mission. So Nat, I would like for you to share with us uh, what you what you have learned about how humanists are facing death without God. Yeah, so it's super fun. Uh, it's like 2 p.m. Wednesday or Tuesday morning. I uh, just uh, got in my car and drove down, you know, a couple hours to another to another state. I'm in my wonderfully silent Prius just stopped off at a station somewhere down in Iowa. I'm about three hours in and I was going to grab a Dr. Pepper but the line was too long and I'm running a couple minutes late so no Dr. Pepper for me. I can make it all the way. So yeah, we we drove down and uh, it showed up at this little uh, tiny little deli in the middle of Des Moines. It was all dark. It was snowy. It was kind of a, a super slippery uh, a drive in. It had been snowing in the evening. It was pretty great. Uh, showed up, wandered in, and uh, there was just like people sitting around at tables. Like, how are you supposed to approach this? Like, I'm looking for a death cafe. Like, <laughs> like how, how do you start that? So there's no sign like outside. It didn't like say welcome to the death cafe. Well, because the death cafe isn't a place. It's a movement. Right. So, is it actually an event of some kind now? Yes, it's an event. Exactly. Like, it's more we're going to gather at a cafe and talk about death, and it's like an advertised event, right? Right. So, uh, you know, I, we called up. I called up the facilitator and talked to her a little about, it, and she explained this. Uh, basically, once a month they meet together uh, as part of this death cafe movement, and at somewhere where there's a cafe, and just uh, meet to talk about death. There's, there's no sort of rules about, you know, what you can and can't talk about. It's just, it's not a support group. It's just an open discussion about death to try and facilitate, you know, sort of like, you know, it's something sort of destigmatize the conversation. Um, I, could I think Peter, it's the idea. Could Peter open a death cafe or start a death cafe and just put it on Eventbrite? Yeah, totally. Although they have okay. a website, it's like deathcafe.com, which sort of hosts sort of like the catalog of where they all are, but there's nothing... There's nothing super crazy structural about. I structured about it. I think it started uh, in England a few years ago, 
Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because I'm actually sitting here in Edinburgh right now. And I was reading uh, just from some, some background and research in preparation for our episode here. I didn't know it at the time, but it was 2014 that one of the first death cafes was held here in Edinburgh. It sounds like in a little cafe called love crumbs of all things. And uh, (laughs) yeah, they got together and just opened it up and, and talked about death. They had a a cup of tea. I'm sure they had some biscuits. Uh, They had some starters and and mains and everything. And they just, that was the conversation here. So that was 2014. I think it started just uh, prior to that in England, maybe by a year or two. Right. And and to loop back uh, to when I'm just standing there, they do have a sign only it, it was like facing the wrong direction. And so I was sort of like awkwardly standing there and someone was like, looked over knowingly at me and was like death cafe. And I was like, yes, I've found my people. I just got done with the Death Cafe. I, they received me with open arms as the one person who looked sort of lost. And I'm going to have to go find some food to eat. And maybe find a, find a caribou to decompress and look through the notes I took and, and deal with this. Because death isn't easy. But man, I have to say, these are it was an incredibly fun group of people. I would go and hang out with them any day. So how many people were at this thing? I mean, was there was it obvious that people were there for the death cafe or were people just drinking coffee unknowingly and then the death cafe event starts? There were people drinking coffee unknowingly. There were uh, 12 people who came. So, you know, not super huge, but not super small either. Like, it's a significant collection of people for a discussion. And we just sort of sat at a long table and uh, and it continued. And I should note that I arrived a little bit late, so I'm not 100% sure how it started exactly. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, so they open the floor and people just sort of tool around conversationally about death. That's the only constraint. So when I walked in, they were talking about DNRs. And I was sitting there going, why is a death cafe talking about the Department of Natural Resources? <laughs> and, and talking about because tattooing you it have, on your arms. Because you do not have a do not resuscitate order. Yeah, I was just going to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's just getting sorted out in your 30s, typically, I think, right, Carmen? Right. That's right. That's yeah. right. Are you an organ donor? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, do you have things. a do not resuscitate order? Do you have a living will? Yeah. All those things. It took me like a solid five minutes before I realized it was a do not resuscitate. And I'm like, oh, okay. Now I'm feeling a little young. Uh, I was the youngest person there by a bit. I was going to ask, but- yeah, what were the demographics as part of this event? I mean, was it of all ages? Was it Did it tend to skew one direction? What did you see? It was like mid-20s or mid-30s to uh, about 65, but most people were sort of in their 30s about. And uh, it was just really casual conversation about death. So, like, we started with DNRs, but we quickly switched into um, a documentary someone had seen about the death penalty, and they were talking about, like, okay, you know, how does it go – Knowing that you're going to die versus, you know, sort of like the DNR is like, okay, you know, this might happen and I'm prepped for it. But, you know, what happens when you know that you have 10 minutes left and it's it's a known, you know, so like what do you go through there? So that, that was brought up. That was a topic of conversation. Um, and that just sort of ebbed and flowed. And, you know, that brought up euthanasia and sort of the death doula idea. Uh, it, it, was, it was an interesting sort of set of transitions there. Okay. So you have just surfaced actually a bunch of... Uh independent topics that I think that we should roam around in. Um, You have mentioned death doulas. We're going to talk about that. Um, You have mentioned um, maybe this like death with dignity or Mm -hmm. assisted suicide or like choosing your own time and the way that you would go. Um, 
writing your own obituary was something that I also thought I might throw in here because that has been a topic of recent conversation. Yeah. But let's yeah. let's start here. Let's just start with um, just a kind of an open conversation about how the American approach in particular to death and dying has really changed pretty radically just in the last generation. Um, so I read a piece by John Meacham um, in the Washington Post, and it was entitled, Are We in the Middle of a Revolution on Death? And it really asked a bunch of provocative questions about really just in individualism, but also the, the sort of loss of those intermediating institutions like the church, um, who in the past really provided a context for not only the grieving, but, um, but an institutional way of moving through the grief process, mm -hmm. getting a person buried, having some kind of event. I mean, I don't know about you, but I have all kinds of people in my life now who, when they die, nothing happens. There's no event of any kind um, because they don't belong to any institutional church religious institution of any of any variety and so who's going to have an event it's a very strange um evolution in terms of the approach to death in america yeah it really is Cameron. i was reading another story alongside of that to kind of compliment what meacham was saying in, in this article and, and it was in the guardian newspaper here in uh in the uk talking about how different it is now compared to 100 years ago where a hundred years ago, death was sort of all around everyone. And so it was sort of part almost of, you know, it sounds maybe morbid to say, but almost like a weekly rhythm. It was just, people didn't live as long. I mean, if you got to 40, 45 years old, that was a pretty extended lifetime. And, and the author is making the point that people went to war and never came back. Big families were expected because some would die in infancy, some women would die in childbirth, uh, all of these sorts of things and how different it was to have it almost just sort of embedded as part of the life of the community in which, as you've indicated, the church could be a really sacred place to help people walk through that threshold and that process. And he used the phrase in this article as sort of the outsourcing of death now. And the idea that, as I think you said, Carmen, people die and people don't even know it because the whole, you know, you can get picked up within a couple of hours. Again, it sounds sort of morbid, but um, but somebody comes by and they take care of it. I, I have a very good friend of mine here over the last uh, 15, 20 years and he actually is maybe the the second or third sort of lead in uh, in a funeral home. And he talks about what his days are like, where basically he shows up and he's a bit of a grief counselor for maybe about 15 minutes uh, for the people who have just lost somebody. And he's a strong believer. He really is compassionate and caring, but he has a job to do at the end of the day. And the, and the tension in having a job as somebody who is completely unknown to the family prior to the death and now is having to come in and come alongside the family, but also whose primary reason for being there is to take the body and to take care of the body from there. That's this sort of this outsourcing of death. That's a very different world in which we live. And I think Meacham, to your point, is making some really important points about this. So apparently there are a lot of people here in the United States of America, and my guess is around the world, who um, believe because they they don't believe in God, or they certainly don't believe in a personal God. They don't believe in the God of the Bible. And so they've lived their life as an autonomous, self-fulfilling um, person. And so they are interested in customizing what is going to happen, um, not only upon their death, but after their death. And so innovation is a big part of this conversation. Mm -hmm. um, what to do with the body 
um, is a big part of this conversation. Um, the green movement, like so the the people who want human bodies to not be embalmed and not be buried um, and want them instead to be liquefied, um, that is a thing. Um, and so um, there, there are, and this isn't just a morbid conversation. We're trying to have a worldview conversation here yeah. and really provoke people, not just to think about death, but to think about it in terms of to whom does this life belong? Yeah. Um, in life and in death, we belong to God. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and Nat, in light of that, uh, connecting with what Carmen is saying yeah. and some of these different worldviews, what, what did you sort of sniff out in your conversations at the Death Cafe? How are people approaching these things uh, in, in light of what we're talking about? Well, I think, uh, Carmen, you, you pointed out, you know, people really do kind of want to control, you know, what happens to them after they've died. And I can see why. Like, how would that not be, you know, sort of the next step in, in taking, you know, in, in working through customizing your whole life? Um, you know, I know a conversation that came up several times was, you know, sort of like, do you want the environmental impact of your body? Are you going to be an organ donor? You know, that, that definitely was up there, but here's what sort of like from the worldview perspective that, that came out, no matter what topic we talked about, the, the sort of overarching thing that people were looking for was empathy and compassion in response to whatever conversation they were having about death that, that that really is what sort of tied everything together it wasn't just the death it was we want empathy and compassion out of it we don't want you to tell us that you know how we feel we know how we feel just walk through this with me and it was just sort of a cry for like this is not how as a society we deal with death and, and Carmen in light of your worldview two conversation that Nat is talking about we want empathy we want compassion but boy, it, I mean, it's different, right? Depending on your worldview. I just keep thinking in the back of my mind of the scripture passage that's oft quoted and probably quite familiar about the idea of grieving. But uh, as believers, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. And so, you know, their empathy and compassion in the midst of hope is really different than empathy and compassion in the midst of that's it. No consciousness, no nothing. Like I even think about why are people so consumed with what's going to happen post their death. I can understand on some level, you know, you don't want to make an environmental impact or something along those lines, but wow, it's almost like they think they're going to be there somehow. I, it's just, it's a really interesting conversation. And I don't know how a, a secular humanist approaches this without the sense of hope or without the sense of consciousness beyond all of that um, compared to the believer. So that conversation goes in two very uh, bizarrely different directions. There are yes. those people, the, there are those humanists who, um, you know, they're, they're dying with no belief in God, no reliance on God. They, I mean, they think this is all there is. And I mean, they, they genuinely believe that. And yet they are the same people who will, um, you know, say, well, you know, you'll, you'll see me in every butterfly. Every butterfly yeah. over time is evidence that I have moved through the chrysalis and I fly again. And you're just like, okay, so that's either some kind of strange reincarnation imagination um, right. or some just pure sentimentality, absolutely pure emotional sentimentality. Um, and then on the flip side, there are those who are, who regard the body as nothing, as if the matter doesn't matter. And in, in my view, that is, that is as offensive to God as just ignoring him, because you are saying that that which God has made and that vessel that he has given you, which he would 
absolutely adore to use as a, a temple of the Holy Spirit, um, to be used as a as an instrument in His hand throughout this life. That you know, He matter matters. The the incarnation of Jesus Christ absolutely proves that the human body matters. Matter yeah. matters. Jesus rose physically in the body, and we are promised a bodily resurrection as well. I don't perfectly understand that, but um, I do know that that influences not only what I think about the body now, but about what should happen to the body after death, which would, which would provoke me to say that burial is, is a superior theological uh, end to even cremation. Yeah. So Peter. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you're, that you're barking up the same tree that I've barked up about these sorts of questions and knowing, and especially growing up in the Catholic church as in the way that I did, there was a pretty robust theological understanding of the need to preserve, preserve the body because of what you just said, Carmen, which is the idea that there was an emphasis on a resurrected body that would go along with it. And I, and I think people understood on some level, it was symbolism because the body was going to decompose this, this frail body that um, is going to be buried perishable will be raised imperishable. I think people knew that, but there was a sense of treating the body and matter as sacred at that point. And so I've really wrestled with ideas of cremation and some of what Nat is talking about in terms of how people, you know, you brought up liquefying Carmen and in other ways, you know, I, I would want to lean into the church a little bit for 15, 1600 years in terms of how they understood these things. And, and I know for sure for the Jews, uh, that having been to Jerusalem, when you're standing sort of in the old city walls and you look across the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives and you see all of these amazing gravestones that are sort of on the eastern side of Jerusalem, there's a belief um, for the Jews that didn't necessarily believe Jesus was the Messiah, but when the Messiah comes, they would be raised as well. And, and they wanted to be buried full bodily form on the eastern hillsides there uh, on the Mount of Olives because they believed that they would then be the first to be resurrected with the new bodies. So when, when you're faced with a pretty extensive theological world history about what the body is and the sacredness of the body, I, I think it would at least be worth a pause to wonder about why are we doing what we're doing related to cremation, liquefaction, all of these kinds of ideas. And, and I think certainly, as you said, in the Christian worldview, um, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I'm 49 years old right now, and I'm starting to feel a bit creaky, shall we say, and, and I'm looking forward to having uh, a resurrected body. But I, but I am um, incarnated, my, my very self is incarnated in a body. Uh, I am not fully spirit, though it's my spirit that is the immortal part of me, but there is a housing for the spirit. And I think we need to think about those things quite a bit more than we do. So, um, Nat, yeah. you're, the, you're the youngest among us. Yes. I'm, I'm confident that Peter and I have some stories that I know I do, the stories that we can tell about people very close to us um, who have died and how that influences our approach to this conversation. Um, how about you? If, is this something that you have experienced in your life? Well, I think it was a, a year or two ago my grandfather died. And so, you know, we walked through that and, you know, I was there when he died. So, like, it's not too unfamiliar. But other than that, really, it's not like I'm young enough where most of my my whole circle of, of my social circles, you know, you aren't in a place where either by age they're going to die or just, you know, Fortunately, we haven't had any, you know, accidents or um, tragic things come about. And so I don't feel like I'm super, you know, like I, like it super hit me. 
you know, to me, sort of I walk through every day and like, oh, we're all going to live because that's just, I don't feel like I've been hit with, with a lifestyle or a society that really, uh, that really sort of emphasizes or brings death to the surface. And maybe that's why we need to uh, have the conversation in death cafes so that, you know, it hasn't, you know, it is, does get thought about more. Um, yeah, I, I think that's fair because I think about the times that, uh, and in, in, let's just say that in the small group Bible study in the church, <laughs> that what we're talking about here today, I don't remember a single time in that particular context where this conversation was brought up at all. And I think that's even why I feel like, gosh, do I even have path, even well-worn pathways from which to draw? I can't think about in 17 years of teaching that I've ever really, I mean, we've addressed, uh, addressed euthanasia and we address you know, what happens in the afterlife theologically and those sorts of things. But I can't think of a single time in 17 years of teaching in Christian schools that we've talked about the process of death and uh, some of the questions we're bringing up today. So I wonder if that isn't just part of why there is sort of even a, a little bit of an outcrop era and uh, sort of this, this uprising. Okay, so just to reset a little bit, guys, um, maybe we make a little bit of a pivot and we talk about walking through the experience of death, either in our, you know, in our own families or with people we love, um, and then, and then how that really has changed and is and continues to change and will certainly be different for those who um, are, you know, are emerging as adults now. So death has been, I mean, Peter, you said a really interesting thing. You said, you know, it's not really a well-worn rhythm in, um, in life yeah. at this stage. I would say death is the most well-worn rhythm of my life. Really? Yeah. I'd love to hear wow. more. So this is something you've actually talked about around tables or, or had experience? Oh, and something yeah. that, and something that has framed my faith since very early in my life. So, um, the first person who was, you know, very near and dear to me who died was my cousin, Angie. And we were both 14 and she mm. spent, um, about 18 months to two years, very slowly dying of, um, of lymphoma. And it was, it, and our whole family walked through that process together. Um, and maybe like six months later, um, so I would have been a sophomore in high school, my best, my, so I played softball all along from grade school on. It was my thing. And um, I caught, I was the catcher and the best pitcher in our league and the best pitcher at our high school, um, her name was Carol Kennedy. And when she was a senior and I was a sophomore, she was killed in a car accident. Oh my gosh. And my dad spoke at her at one of the memorial services that was held for her because he was one of our coaches. And then three months later, my dad died of wow. a heart attack. Wow. And so that was in May of my sophomore year of high school. And so um, by then you are asking the question. Um, it's not as if death is somewhere way off when you're 80 or 90. I mean, death comes at 14. It comes at 16. Yeah. It comes at 43. Death comes. Wow. And, and death comes for people who are perfectly healthy. And, and so the question of not just what happens when we die, but what in the world are we in the world to do and how much time do we have to get it done? And so yeah. living with a sense of urgency about eternal things yep. has been my wiring since then. Um, and so people who just like waste their life and waste time, it is evident to me that they do not share my experience of the urgency of life. Um, this, you know, I, you know I, so that is part of my that is part of the way that I am wired. And so having conversations about death is actually really easy for me. 
because mm. I don't view death as an enemy. I view death as, you know, hey, it's the it's the doorway through which we are all going to walk into the presence of the living God. Yeah. And so um, I don't fear it. Um, and I am definitely a to live as Christ, to die as gain um, kind of person. Just I'm trying to remember, was it three years ago now? 2016, however many years ago that was now. Because, <laughs> you know, podcasts are eternal, so I won't put a timeline on this. Yeah, in, right. 20, in 2016, um, my my very best friend, she's the same. we were the same age, um, she was diagnosed with cancer, and she died 12 days later. Wow. Oh. And so this, this reality um, that death comes um, happens with urgency and frequency. And so I don't feel like I live separated from death. Um, I feel like it's my next door neighbor. Um, And so I, I think that the way we have sought to sanitize and separate um, death is, and is not particularly healthy. I mean, cultures around the world, you know, a person dies, they lay, they, they clear off the table and they lay them out and they clean them up and they, um, and somebody builds a box and they bury them. And there is a, there's a family act. There's a communal act. Um, the family is then allowed a whole year to grieve. We don't give people that anymore either. I mean, there's just all kinds of conversations that I think could be had. So I will fast forward to this year. So my mom is 81. Um, my aunt Marilyn, who was my dad's last surviving sister died. And we all went, my mom, my sister and I all went to the funeral in Indiana. Yeah, I remember and, that. I remember when you were away for a bit. Yeah, yeah. So you probably covered for me. So thank I you. Yeah. Um. So we are standing in this graveyard, and my dad is buried like right over there. So my mom and my sister and I, after we do the graveside thing for Aunt Marilyn, we walk over to my dad's grave, and my mom, with all of the dignity, uh, I mean, she is a very dignified woman. And with all of the dignity of who she is, she says, the next time you girls will be here will be to bury me. Mm. Wow. Wow. And so in the car, driving <clears throat> then from Brook, Indiana, back to West Lafayette, um, for whatever it was we were doing next, um, that's the conversation we had. We oh, had yeah, the conversation yeah. about the fact that, you know, my mom is going to die. Yeah. And it is going to suck. Are we allowed to say that? It's a podcast. And, and, <laughs> and, um, um, but it will not be the end for her or for us. And so I do think it's a conversation people need to have. Yeah. I mean, Carmen, there's so much there in what you said. And um, you, you mentioned that because of sort of your ongoing and significant experience with death, even at a very early age, that it brought uh, some significant measure of clarity to your life and to your purpose in life. And it's pretty hard to waste a life, I would say, when you've been confronted with the realities of the end of life in that way. I was listening to a song today with my family in the car and, and um, my wife Hallie brought it up too, just, and I don't remember the exact phrase, it's a song from Mumford and Sons, but it's the idea of um, a brush with the devil uh, brings great clarity. And, uh, and so when, you, when you're sort of in the midst of the darkness, you can then see the contrast of the light to which we're called. And in those places, uh, maybe stories for a different time that I have stood face to face with death, it really does bring purpose. I remember the things that I stopped caring about almost on the spot in those moments. And there were things that were just kind of dumb things, things that were not worth caring about. 
at the end of the day, but you can almost, it's, it's hard to get yourself to stop caring about sort of the inane things of life at the end of the day, whether it's a job or prestige or power or money or what are all of those different things. They just don't lead you anywhere. And it's almost, you, you need that, that brush somehow, whether it's a friend close to you, whether it's you yourself, you, you need to taste the fullness of it, not just as an idea out there, but as something that is very real and stark and is going to happen. I think uh, for many people to sort of as this wake up call. And, and I think to the extent that we do and can talk about it and be in the midst of it, it it's something that I think we share. Uh, Christians share with secular humanists a bit, as I know that the secular humanists in my life that are friends of mine, when they talk about death, they do say it brings great purpose to their life, that they, they, they do care about doing things that they perceive to matter in this life. And of course, there's a falsity in that premise, you know, when there's no afterlife at the end of the day, if the universe cools in 2000 years, all of these things are going to be forgotten anyway, if there's no future, no hope, no nothing. Uh, so it is a false premise on which they're basing. But I do find it interesting, the common reaction to death and brushes with death, whether you're a believer or not, is that it does bring this clarifying effect. And for you, Carmen, at 14, I mean, that is a really early age to lose somebody close. I can't... I, how, how have your have your thoughts about death evolved over those times? I mean, processing that as a 14 year old versus standing at the gravesite with your mother, uh, you know, within the last couple of years. I mean, what what has been your journey in terms of its understanding as you've rushed it so many different times? So I think if my dad, um, I mean, at 43, he didn't have a will. So let me just go ahead yeah. and say whatever age you are, if you're an adult, you should have a will, um, because if you don't it's just chaos for everybody else. So, yeah, um, so, um, in, in terms of, um, in terms of my view of death, um, I would say it has become, it has become an expectation. So I'm not a person who fears it for myself or for others. I mean, I, I would say that there's a little bit of a matter of factness about it mm -hmm. to me. I mean, as a matter of fact, we are all going to die. And yeah. I don't, and I don't view that as some sort of scary, you know, thing. Um, I, I, it's very matter of fact. And, and so dealing with that reality um, is important. So how are you going to deal with the fact that you are going to die? Well, I, I have dealt with the fact that I'm going to die by accepting the free gift of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And so in fact, I'm already dead, right? And I'm already raised to newness of life in Christ. And so this life that I live is no longer mine. Um, and therefore I can, I can live it with abandon because it's, it's already his. He's all, you know, so, so I think that my view of death has changed in that um, it's no longer something that I perceive is going to happen to others. It is something that I perceive about my own life um, and that I want others to, have a have a greater clarity about and ask themselves the real questions that need to be asked. Yeah, no, I, I think that's fair. And I think even for believers too, uh, not to go too far down a different bunny trail, but I know that there's so many of my young students in my class that they've sort of grown up with the perception that they hope they can get into heaven when they die. But they're kind of afraid about that. And, and they end up maybe doing, you know, some prayer of faith over and over and over again to try to assure themselves of their future destiny. But you're talking about something different Carmen, you're talking about an assurance that's part of this deal where um, you can live with a bit of abandon. Is there, 
is there some way, I mean, if somebody was listening right now or for young people that are like, gosh, I just, I hope I get in. I hope my name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life somewhere and I get through those pearly gates. You know, what, how do you move from that place of fear and uncertainty to assurance and abandon? When I became a Christian, I, I literally gave everything of myself that I knew to everything of Christ that I understood. Um, and so if, if, if what you're doing when you are, you know, quote unquote, becoming a Christian is giving him just the business on the other side of death. If you're yeah. just, you know, you just want a, a, you just want a policy that's related to, you know, to that, but you don't really want a comprehensive life policy, right? So the, the reality is Jesus wants it all. He died for it all. Um, there's grace over it all. Um, and so every square inch belongs to him. And I would say, if you are, if you're, if you're praying over and over again for some sense of assurance, then at some point you didn't pray at all over the, over the line, like just pray it all over the line. Don't try to hold something back on your side of the line. Like I'm going to reserve these things for me. Mm. I'm going to make these decisions. I'm going to be over the Lord over these things in my life. And Jesus is going to take care of the ultimate sin problem that I have. Um, and therefore I have to pray it every day because every day I have to have him deal again with the sin that was new today because of the part of my life that I was still trying to control. Yeah. Well, that is going to be exhaust. You're going to exhaust yourself. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I would just say my encouragement is to hold, withhold nothing. God has withheld nothing in Jesus Christ. And so withhold nothing, give your life to him, lock, stock and barrel, all of it. Don't withhold anything. And then trust that he is absolutely not only going to welcome you home into heaven forever, but he is going to use you every moment of every day of the life he gives you to live here on earth. Hmm. And when, uh, you know, when that number of days is up that he has allotted to you, assigned to you, and he calls you home to himself, oh, what a glorious day that will be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the phrase, right? Oh, what a glorious day. And I, I think there's many people for probably really understandable reasons that don't have that mindset that maybe could sing that line, but it still doesn't feel like potentially a glorious day. And, and I think some of that has to do with what our perceptions of heaven are. I think some of it has to do with, as you just indicated, what our perceptions of what it means to give your life to Jesus and, and, and what happens in that. I know as you're talking, I was sitting here thinking, that theologians sort of have this fancy phrase where it talks about the kind of people we are meant to be in this world as followers of Jesus, that we really are citizens of a foreign country. We really are citizens of a different land, and we're just simply passing through this earth. And the phrase they use is that we are eschatological people or people of the eschaton or people of the things that are yet to come. And one of the great promises in the Christian scriptures in the New Testament is that some of that future uh, that we will taste in fullness, we taste in part in this life. It's like we get a little taste of home. And, and I think about those times when I travel and that sometimes it, travel can be great and it feels a lot like home and it feels very comfortable. But other times sometimes it, traveling can be really disorienting and it doesn't really feel like I belong and I don't really know where I fit and I don't really know how to get around and, and days feel awkward and I'm always a bit unbalanced. And, uh, and in those travels, it doesn't mean that there's not a lot of joy to have in the travels, but it just means I'm not quite at peace with the whole thing. And, and after an extensive time of way uh, away, when I finally get home, when I finally have my, my, you know, a big piece of luggage in my right hand and in my left hand as well. And I walk through the threshold of the door of my house and I put those bags down. I'm like, Oh, 
I'm finally home. And, and when I'm home there, then there is peace. There is no more striving. There is this kind of, I, I get this idea of, of God saying, well done, good and faithful servant. When you walk through that threshold of death, because you're finally actually home, you're finally where you belong. All of the burdens of this life are now laid down. Everything is being made new. All of the, that kind of language of the text makes sense when we perceive and see ourselves as part of a world where we're not actually citizens. We are citizens of a different kind of kingdom. And that changes the perception of the idea of maybe a homecoming or a glorious day that it would be, or the ability to put the bags down. I mean, I I can think of people in my life that they got into their late 80s and early 90s. And when I was young, I didn't really understand why they began to sort of look forward that they wanted death to come for them at those points. And and I, I mentioned feeling a bit creaky here at the age of 49. Um, I'm not yet ready to go. I mean, and if God, if these are my days, these are my days, I get it. But I, I want to be here for my kids and my wife and and for whatever God has in, in front of me in that way. But I can kind of like get the first taste of saying, hmm, I think there's probably going to be a better home at the end of the day. And, and I think every once in a while, there's a little gift that God gives where I can hear just a little bit of the music of home. It doesn't last long. Um, it usually brings uh, some tears and says, okay, uh, home is still coming. I can keep saying yes to this life, but getting to be 89, 90, 92, 94, I can kind of see like, yeah, it's probably time to lay, lay this whole thing down, uh, at that point. And, uh, and those are relatively new thoughts for me at this point in life, but we don't talk about these things. And I think we could bring a lot more hope to people in our churches and in our small groups and in our families, if we just simply talk about it. I'm wondering, um, Nat, since yeah. you went to this Death Cafe event, what? just imagine with me for a moment. Let's mm-hmm. just imagine that some Christians convened a Death Cafe in their community. Is it like, what if, what if we did not only have these conversations, but what if we invited people to the table of this conversation as Christians? What might that look like? Okay. <laughs> oh, the coronavirus. Okay, hang on. <laughs> So to, I guess to answer your question, Carmen, uh, there's no reason we can start a death cafe, right? Like it's an open movement. Uh, generally, part of the idea is it's not, it's not super, super tied to sort of like an, a, a religious umbrella in that it should be just like an open discussion. But that doesn't bar any discussion um, or, or reason. Now, I think I mentioned this earlier, sort of what it looked like everyone was looking for in their topic was um, – you know, you know, obviously there's sort of a search for like, what, what does our life mean in knowing that it's going to come to an end? You know, what what does all that come? You know, like, what is an afterlife? Do we hear sort of like songs from some something else or, or do we not? Is it an empty void? But through all of that, sort of like on a practical level, everyone was looking for empathy and compassion, right? Like they just want someone to sort of sit through things. So I wonder if running something like this, you could provide a sort of... Uh, you know, if we could be a space that is loving and compassionate in the topic of death, because, you know, that is something that sort of we've seen a struggle with, uh, you know, sometimes in in sort of these these church structures that that it's not sort of what ends up coming out. So I don't know. Thoughts? Yeah, well, it just it, it occurs to me when you're talking, going back to Carmen's word of assurance as well, um, if there could somehow be present in the midst of that kind of situation, believers who have authentic assurance kind of that, that, that sense of inside out assurance that you can kind of sniff out when a believer is maybe trying to claim something that they don't actually have and maybe say things that they don't actually 
really have it, it sort of ringing through their souls. But if there's actual people, I mean, Carmen, when you were talking earlier about your approach to death and your feelings about death, it, it did reek of an authentic assurance. And, and I think yeah. it would have the capacity to actually call people to some really interesting questions about, so what do you have that I don't? And, and I'm not entirely sure what that New Testament passage means where it talks about uh, the idea that be prepared to give an account for the hope that you have. But, but hope to me is always something about the future. And, and believers do live within a place of hope that you can really only have when you know your future is secure. And so it, it, it seems to me that there's a good news. The good news of the gospel is more than just that your sins have been forgiven. The good news of the gospel and the heart of it is that death itself has been beaten and, and the clock is being rolled backwards. And the first fruits of a resurrected body have already appeared on the scene, that being who Jesus is, who has shown us what our future holds. And so we can begin to live without fear in the midst of the infirmities of this life. And I, to, to have a bunch of hopeful, assured, fearless people in the room that has got to be a compelling witness of some kind. I mean, I don't know, Carmen, what your thoughts are, but just hearing hearing Nat answer the question, that's the first place that my mind goes. Okay, can I introduce one more crazy topic before we dash yeah. off? So I'm reading this in The Sun, which I recognize may not be the most um, reliable news source. <laughs> However, <laughs> um, right. I, this, this headline popped on the 17th of January, 2020. Um, Want to live forever? You just have to make it to 2050, experts yeah. now say. A top yep. futurologist has revealed the cutoff date for achieving immortality. Uh, we've got bad news for anyone born before 1970. So I was born in 1968. I don't know that I'm going to make it. I was born right on 1970, so I do have a yeah. So you have a chance. You have a, I chance. Do have a chance. In I, the words I, of the esteemed futurologist, future, mm -hmm, future dude. <laughs> future guy, about, yeah. Dr. Ian Pearson, he believes humans are very close to achieving immortality, the ability to never die. Peter? <laughs> it was terrifying, Carmen. The idea of downloading my consciousness into multiple robotic forms is where he was really heading with it. And and uh, and I just, I, A, I don't buy it at all. Like, I think there's zero chance of this happening. Uh, but, but number two, the idea that... What? I don't even get why I would want to try to live a life in robotic form and sometimes find myself, as he was saying, maybe in Australia, sometimes in Japan, different relationships, different bodies. He did talk about the idea that you get sort of a robotic allotment, that you maybe only get a few different robots for your consciousness. But I'm, I'm always, that idea of life is about relationships is, is way too much of a cliche. But I love those movies where they do sort of the fountain of youth and somebody outlives all of the people around them or is now somehow fragmented from all the people around them. I don't have any desire to be sitting in some sort of robotic body in, in a consciousness living in all sorts of different places in the world and having an individualized social experience. I'd rather, again, it's going to sound terribly cliche, but I'd rather be raised eternal and be with the people that I love and care about for eternity without any fear, without ever having to think about, I wonder where my next body is. I think I'd rather have my future in my hands in God, who's probably going to know a lot better what to do with my future than me, where I'm going to download myself next. It just, it doesn't make sense to me, but it speaks 
uh, of a fear and a desire to overcome death that is maybe understandable but unachievable. So thanks for joining us on this episode of The Till. I'm Carmen LeBurge with Peter Kapsner and Nat Becker. I think our real hope was to get people thinking about not only death but immortality. Um, humanists believe that we're going to achieve immortality here in these mortal bodies on this earth. Um, you and I both know that immortality is going to come in and through Jesus Christ and the life that he offers, not only eternally in heaven forever, but right here and right now. So we want to encourage you to go out there and lead a life that's worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Have a great day. God bless.